Across Africa, the African Private Equity and Venture Capital Association's podcast. In this series, industry leaders will share their views on the investment landscape in Africa and will discuss latest trends covering fundraising, deal-making, value creation and exits across private equity, credit and venture capital. In this episode, fund managers share their experiences on how they are mitigating the risks of the COVID-19 pandemic on their fundraising, investment strategies and portfolio companies. This session with Albert Alsina, founder and CEO at Mediterranean Capital Partners, Yomi Yemibewon, managing partner at Cardinal Stone Capital Advisors, Adesua Okumbo Rhodes, founding partner and managing director at Arua Capital Management, Karima Ola, partner at Lipfrog Investments, and John Seymour, head of private equity and mezzanine finance at Sanlam Investments, was moderated by Gita Tharmaratnam, CEO and founding partner at Equalitas Capital Partners. Its recording is part of Afghans Uniting Against the Impacts of COVID-19 series, launched in April 2020. It's a pleasure to be here today with a very interesting and, and important group of people really across uh, representation um, of what is happening in private equity today with a deep experience and with some more recent fund managers as well. Delighted to be here. Um, and I think we're ready to, to dive directly into the discussion. So perhaps if I can start with uh, Yomi here. Yomi, right now, there are two things that are happening. One, for fund managers who have got capital and who have got investments, uh, they are, for the most part, busy with trying to triage with the existing portfolio. Do you find that to be the case for yourself as well? Where is your energy going right now? Uh, thank you very much, Gita. Um, yes, um, our energy is going to both. Um, just uh, as a background, on our fund, um, we have one active portfolio and we are quite advanced on three, uh, where we're actually in the middle of a due diligence and we're quite advanced in uh, uh, term sheet negotiation for two. So on one hand, the first investment, uh, which is tranched, um, we did the first tranche last year, uh, end of last year, and uh, subsequent tranches were supposed to come in within six to, 12, uh, six to 12 months of the investment. So there are all these questions around that, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But there's also on the investments that we're looking at, where we're in DD, uh, we're actually asking ourselves, what does this mean in terms of the valuation, structure, pricing, as well as timing, uh, and in fact, the uh, value addition process thereafter. So um, our heads are at both places, but you know we have to prioritize, most importantly, what capital is already on the table. Uh, and so there's actually a lot of activity over the last six weeks uh, with the one portfolio company there's uh, an officially a weekly update call that we're having on cash management strategy, you know, scenario planning. But there's also uh, almost uh, once every two days where we're chatting because everything is moving live. So I, I don't know. I hope that uh, that's a good quick answer to your question. Uh, you may too, but uh, let me let me come back with a, a second question to you. Uh, you mentioned a, a word there, tranche. What is happening with investments where you were expecting? to deploy the second or the third tranche. What is a pivot you may be doing in this circumstance? Okay, so let, let me, uh, I'll answer that uh, on two levels. Uh, in our scenario planning, we actually, we're asking ourselves, so we've been shut down now for about a month and we project having to shut down for an extra two more weeks, to potentially three, three, um, three, uh, three additional months. 
So we're asking ourselves, number one, when do we open? And what, um, what utilization and, and income do we expect thereafter? And how long will it take for us to get to steady state? Under the basic best case scenario, um, one to two quarters will be back to close to normal. Under the worst case scenario, um, the, we might not be back to normal for about 12 months, in which case we'll be burning cash. So the real question about uh, the current business model, uh, how viable is it, and are you going to put more capital into that? Two things I would say. One of the um, silver linings is the business is sort of in the healthcare space, and uh, there's this new healthcare facility that the government has op- released, CBN-backed, 10-year facility, um, 9%. So we've immediately applied for that. That actually has the potential not only to help the, status, uh, the current situation, but also potentially to mitigate the need for additional equity to drive the same investment pieces you have. So that could be a silver lining. But on the, other, on the other hand, we're actually engaging with the entrepreneur to say, in the world where we're going to the worst case scenario, what are some immediate pivots that we can look at? For example, there's a 30% business line. We're asking, what can we do to bump that up, to mitigate the 70% that is most likely going to be hit by people's comfort to come out? So there's conversations around that as well. Okay, thank you so much. Karima Olev, Leapfrog, you're sitting on, on a very large uh, portfolio on the continent. And there are two key areas that Leapfrog has traditionally focused on. The first being financial services and the second being healthcare. Both of which are uh, looking at uh, both opportunities, emergent opportunities, as well as significant challenges. What are you finding in your in your portfolio currently? Financial services and healthcare, and what we're finding for us, I mean, the key what we're finding is that there's extreme diversity um, in terms of the impact across. Um, our businesses, even though we only invest in two sectors. Um, and so for us, the first, you know, one of the first things we clearly did was we, you know, we, it's kind of constant engagement with um, our partners, um, the management teams that are managing our portfolio companies to really try and understand where they are and whether you're basically, and so, you know, even though we only do financial services and healthcare, you're basically seeing that banks are being, banks and um, MBSIs are being impacted in different ways, even though you could sort of see them as credit institutions, insurance being impacted differently, asset managers differently, um, and even in fintech, um, which clearly, you know, on the way up, we basically saw some very high and lofty valuations. On the way down, we're actually seeing very different responses, um, remittances and payments are proving to be um, um, substantially a lot more resilient than, um, say, some of the cre- uh, credit and, uh, and some of the other um, um, and some of the other fintech plays. Um, so we're th- the first thing is actually the range of diverse, uh, the, 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 um, the diverse, um, in, the diverse, diverse impact of COVID. Um, and then on, on the healthcare side, I mean, I think one of the things we're seeing is that's an area where we're seeing immediately where um, it's creating opportunities or different business lines for different businesses. So in Good Life, where we, um, which is um, a, um, a retail, a pharmaceutical retail um, retailer in East Africa, where it's an area where we saw they, you know, basically by base, be able to basically kind of create um, a, a sort of a larger business line in. Um, in, in hand sanitizers, for example, um, we actually saw a, um, a revenue a revenue line develop immediately. Um, um, and so we're seeing sort of very different moves. But one of the things I would say is I've been incredibly impressed by the um, uh, 
um, by the crisis management and the impact. I mean, our, our, our partners are actually at the coalface of, of, where, of, of where they are. And for example, we have an one of our insurance company businesses basically seeing that basically where they don't even where they don't have electronic data management or in their archiving businesses they basically very very quickly on lockdown managed to get seven members of staff actually live in the live in the building where they're providing food and they're providing and they're basically kind of working them on shifts on eight hour shifts transport clothing moving them just to make sure they have um, business continuity so I've been quite impressed by the business continuity um, response of a number of our portfolio companies um, going forward. So, yeah, I'd say, you know, just to summarize, it's the diversity of impact and then also the diversity of response, which is clearly tells us about, um, you know, the kind of you know, quality of management. Thank you very much. Um, Albert, if I can move to you, um, three generations of funds, three vintages of funds, how are you seeing uh, the response of businesses and how is this affecting the way that you're managing your existing portfolio, depending on where it is in its own life cycle? whether in exit or whether in active value creation uh, or early stage uh, due diligence on transactions in the pipeline? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Gita. That's a, a very good question. Look, we have uh, three sets of, of funds, of course. Fund number one is uh, luckily uh, almost all divested, which that's good news. We only have one company left there. When fund number two, it's all fully invested with eight companies. And fund number three, uh, we just closed uh, last December, it is 60% uh, invested and still 40% of dry power. Look, we have to differentiate very clearly each one of them. The, sec the first one is gone, but the second one uh, doesn't have any dry power. So it is very critical when we have been working with the companies of the portfolio, even if all of them uh, are very solid and they have a solid balance sheet, uh, is to identify the fact that you won't be able to call in capital for them in case of uh, additional capital requirements. So there we're working very closely with our LPs to find solutions. I have to say uh, here that uh, all the DFIs have been extremely uh, positive and helpful on helping innovative ways to support us uh, in case of uh, liquidity needs. On liquidity, in all of them, we have been looking at four things, basically. How much cash they have in hand? How much cash do they have available from the existing financing lines or new financing lines? Uh, and then focusing to working capital. And working capital, again, is three things. Your account receivable, how much money you can get out of your clients spending to be paid, how much money you have to pay on accounts payable, and then what is your inventory? And the inventory, of course, managing the supply chain and the continuity of that. Then, of course, uh, the next step that we have been doing under that portfolio is what is the cost reduction that we can take in place to make sure if cash doesn't come through, how long, how many months can we survive? We have called and calculated what we call the burn cash ratio with all of those companies that allow us to see how many months can we survive. It goes from six to 12 months. I think the worst thing that you can, can do is actually not to be prepared for the worst. I think the pandemic is slowly penetrating into Africa. Uh, I think we have to be very alert on how it evolves. So it's very important to be prepared for the worst. And I think each company of each sector, we have sectors from the uh, going from the healthcare to retail supermarket chains to retail fashion, as you can imagine, the impact of that has been pretty severe. And then with that, when you move to the third fund, it's a, it's a combination of both. It's a combination of finding what are the liquidity needs in case that those are needed, uh, understanding that we have very solid companies with resilient uh, cycles, but it will be impacted. 
uh, and understanding that you are losing one year of value creation and how can you uh, overtake that uh, going forward, very important, that uh, concept. And then what is your post-crisis strategy? And then, on the other hand, we're just now starting to see opportunities in the market. How can we capture that? I think having local teams will be very critical because you're going to be two types of lockdowns, the one which is on the national level and the other one which is on the travel ban. I don't think we'll be able to travel to some of those countries for a few months. But having local teams as we do have in Cairo, uh, you know, Algeria, uh, Casablanca, Abidjan will help us tremendously to identify those opportunities. Back to you. Thank you, Gita. Thanks, Albert. Uh, if I can perhaps move to you, John. Um, Sunlon investments are mostly focused in Southern Africa. And uh, two things have happened almost simultaneously. The first is the, the downgrade that happened in South Africa uh, at the end of last year and particularly on the heels, on its heels, you've seen the uh, effects of the, the pandemic. Uh, and today, the government announced a, a fiscal package to help combat the effects of COVID in South Africa. A question I have for you is how are you seeing this play out in your portfolio? Are you seeing a bifurcation between the businesses which are considered as essential businesses uh, versus the ones which are being perhaps more directly affected by the, the, the call for people to stay home? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I think it's a it's a great question. So I think it addresses the the macro situation and then also the company fundamentals that we're seeing. So I think just at a, at a macro level, um, you know, the downgrade really uh, required or, or questioned three things. One is you know being able to take deep cuts to the public sector wage bill, uh, to look at privatising state-owned enterprises and relaxing labour legislation. So what what has done is really I think put a bit of a speed bump in being able to achieve those three three objectives. Um, so I think it is going to be difficult now in the sort of post. COVID-19 world um, to to achieve that. At, at the same time, though, and I guess sorry, the last thing to say on that is, is with, as with any downgrade, you are going to see an increase in the cost of capital. And I think the, the announcement last night by the President as well is going to put further burden in terms of where that, that, that capacity gets funded. And I think you are going to see both credit spreads and rates increasing. So our ability to, to leverage portfolio companies or to access cheap credit, I think those days are probably gone for, for some time. I think um, in terms of our portfolio, we're quite like keeping generous, generalist in nature. So at the moment, we do have a concentration in, in ICT, manufacturing, and then in QSR, so three very different industries. On the ICT side, like we're, very, we, we're clearly seeing winners emerge. So this new way of working, um, we think is there's some permanence to it. Uh, we think people will figure out actually it can work and there's going to be an increased demand for things like data, last mile fiber delivery, et cetera. And I think you're going to see price elasticity there as well. You know, what what people will pay for good quality of, of uh, fiber or broadband delivery at home, I think they will they'll be able to pay um, pay significantly more just to be able to work, work properly. Um, on the manufacturing side, I think we are quite challenged because there's obviously a bifurcation between what's seen as essential services, so things like food, both food retail and food manufacturing, and those, those sectors have been quite well supported. Um, but then on the services side, you, you have seen quite a big impact in that, just in terms of being able to operate. And I think Albert, Albert raised a great point there on working capital. What we're seeing is a huge chain reaction 
for example, accounts receivable. So, you know, when it comes to enterprise clients, we're seeing that survive. But when it comes to small and mid-sized businesses, there's a tremendous amount of strain in the system. I think the way that we've approached things is really threefold. Uh, one is, is, first of all, just to look at basics. Now, this was probably three weeks ago, is just making sure our businesses can operate. So that's, for example, just remote working with a stock of three to 500 for a company. Um, it kind of looks like it's working now, but at the time, there's quite a bit of stress. Uh, but we've managed to achieve that across the board. Uh, we, we then really are focused on liquidity management. Um, I think, again, Albert hits sort of the key metrics there. We are stressing scenarios to, to quite a, a, a critical situation. And I think in terms of the value creation side, uh, we are seeing portfolio uh, company management teams really leaning on us in terms of being able to uh, not just negotiate, but just interact with credit providers. So, you know, within South Africa, we're seeing, obviously, everybody's asking for payment holidays and credit extension. And we're going to have to be quite smart about how we do that and, and critically maintain our relationship through this crisis. The last thing, though, is we are seeing opportunities very clearly. There are going to be winners coming out. So there's definitely going to be industries with um, with But then we see a big opportunity for some of our investee companies to acquire what we call free market share. So they're very diligent. If you've got a good management team, we're seeing it as, a, as an opportunity to put capital behind them and to to, to essentially set the business up on a, on a far larger scale for success going forward. Okay, thanks, John. Um, and uh, Adesura, if I can mention you here, I know that you've quite recently made an investment in a personal hygiene business. Could you perhaps talk us through uh, with a very specific eye on supply chain disruption, what are some of the challenges that managing that business right now, and where are the opportunities coming as well? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Lisa. So, so we have made an investment last in last quarter of uh, last year in a personal uh, hygiene manufacturer. Um, uh, there are uh, a lot of Uh, and we, we've actually highlighted an opportunity to procure uh, 
team that will start producing uh, face masks. Uh, and the production of face masks actually shared some of our existing uh, uh, raw materials that we use for, for some of our SKUs. So we see this as an opportunity to boost our cash flow in the near term, uh, because um, you know, as you know, the healthcare infrastructure here in Lagos uh, is, is, is not uh, as good as it is in other developed markets. Uh, and the fact that there are restrictions of what we can bring in from, from other parts of the world, uh, I think that the government has realized that you know, they need to do everything to support local manufacturing outfits uh, like the business that we've invested in. Um, so that's an opportunity that we've seen. Uh, and as, as Yomi mentioned as well, you know, the CDN have announced a number of directives for supporting local manufacturing within healthcare. Uh, there is that 100 billion naira facility, uh, which is around 260 million dollars. Uh, they've also announced a much larger facility uh, that will be deployed over the, over the next couple of years to help with, you know, medical medical supplies, healthcare infrastructure. Um, so I think, you know, being positioned as the only indigenous manufacturer uh, of a range of personal hygiene products, uh, we're quite well positioned to take advantage of some of the new impetus and some of the new urgency that has uh, that has. Uh, been seen in the government, uh, that, you know, they just see that there's a need to have localization and industry, uh, because without that, you know, we can't guarantee our national safety, we can't guarantee our national security. Um, so there is a lot of impetus right now on the ground to support local companies with production capacity for PPE, but also for food. Uh, you know, we have another business, you know, manage another business that's uh, one of the few hydroponic greenhouses producing tomatoes at a large scale. And we're also seeing support for that business as well. Um, so there are definitely supply chain challenges. I think that there are opportunities you know, if you're placed within sectors that are essential uh, and are you know uh, active in actually providing goods and uh, that are you know for local consumption produced by local companies. Appreciate that. Thank you, uh, so if we change the direction of the, the discussion to looking forward, um, all of you are sitting with white powder. How uh, the questions I'm going to ask are really around how is it you're seeing your pipeline evolve and what are the different decisions you're making? And I'll start with you this time, actually, Albert. What are the different decisions you think you'll be making as you're deciding where to put your capital to work? Between 2013 and 2018, roughly about 3% of the capital that was deployed by outside this nation went into healthcare. For example, are you expecting to put more capital to work in the healthcare space, expecting that to be more resilient going forward? Or are you looking at actually focusing more on, you know, picking up on some of the points that are here, uh, matters relating to resilience in terms of local consumption? Yes, Gita, you're totally right. I think resilience is the name of the, of, of the year. I think uh, it's going to be this crisis will show us which are those businesses which are resilient or not. I think to answer your question, yes, we're looking actively at opportunities, and particularly on building additional build-ups next to our existing portfolio, being uh, healthcare, uh, you know, supermarket retail, and, and also education. Uh, that's uh, some of the three segments that we see them as resilient. Uh, uh, and. I think we're going to be in a situation where we're going to have to differentiate between uh, good companies and right values. I think the challenge for us will be how can we value companies accordingly 
as uh, convertibles are all over the place, as you can imagine, because of the capital markets, I think we're going to have to find creative ways to be able to value those companies, not only based on discounted cash flows, of course, but also on maybe earnouts or maybe like uh, future earnings uh, for some of those companies. I think also we are foreseeing uh, just uh, this uh, week, we have been seeing a number of companies that are willing to open their capital for capital development to take advantage of the consolidation of some sectors. So I think smart people are saying, look, I'm prepared to take a hit on valuation because I know that you will pay less than uh, three months uh, uh, ago. However, I'm prepared to take the advantage of some of my competitors going through trouble and maybe consolidating sectors. I think we're going to see a, a lot of that. And also, I think we will see uh, a trend on more of platforms that uh, we're building. We are now uh, have uh, some businesses in the fund three that we're in the middle of actually one transaction that we are uh, continuing as we have been discussing and we see a huge opportunities to consolidate that the, the sector. So I think uh, a lot of uh, opportunities will come on the, on the market. Uh, on the other hand, also we have stopped some others that the crisis have shown us that they were not resilient. So I think that's a great test now to be in to be able to to see uh, to separate good companies from average companies. So I think we have a great opportunity, and also I think private equity will play a major role on on the post crisis uh, of COVID-19 because I think we're prepared, we're on the ground, and we're very close to some of those businesses. Thank you, Karima. Can I just ask, in terms of your, your decisions in how you deploying the right powder going forward? Having just had a, a, a fund change, a successful fund change, do you find that you are doubling down in terms of the investment choices you had had already, given that you were focusing especially on healthcare and financial services, or are you looking at challenging some element of your investment strategy, whether that is looking at emerging businesses or looking at more sort of consolidation things, picking up on some of what others said? I think you might be on mute there. Can everybody hear me now? We can. Yeah, good. Apologies. Um, yeah, so we invest across, we, we, we're in financial services and healthcare, and financial services is heavily geared into the, what's going on the macro level. And as my colleagues have said, you know, we, um, you know, we, we're in on, you know, when it comes to our investment strategy at the, you know, pre-COVID, it had, it clearly has to change because we are. We, when we look at um, deployment, we're now we are in unprecedented um, territory. Um, at the same time, you know, we we all, um, we, um, we we do we, we you know we basically we realise that we um, there are some businesses and some strategies that are going to work better, um, and so and some businesses that are get, that are significantly substantially more resilient. And so the key thing is to look at this. So resilient business models. Um, I repeat to repeat that again. Um, resilient. Um, management teams, because in Africa, as we know, talent is a kind of key consideration for us. And so um, talent that's been able to basically show that over a number of cycles, it might not be this, it might not be, you know, it, it may not be as bad as COVID, but that they've managed to um, work through and, and, and manage their business accordingly um, over, over a number of cycles it really helps us. And then clearly, we're also thinking through how we structure, you know, the um, this, you know, with COVID, we've got, a, we, we, you know, Africa's early stage, we've got a public health um, crisis, and then after which the impacts of the lockdown will, um, and the cessation of economic activity will in turn have another a secondary impact, a second order impact. And so 
we're clearly, you know, and we, you know, and I think what helps is because we've already got two funds um, and we're basically seeing, um, you know, and, and our management have been very, very good at basically kind of running us through some of the scenario planning and what they're seeing on, on the ground and moving that and updating us as we go forward. Um, we're hit and using that to sort of um, to inform how we basically then look at other businesses, but we, you know, so, um, um, you know, the business model, resilient business model, but structuring is going to then be key, you know, how are we looking at, you know, COVID already exists, what does a, what does a, a MAC clause look like when COVID exists, but you don't yet know what the impact or the long-term impact will be over over the course of the time, um, what determination provisions look like in in a period like this. Um, you know, are you going to basically, you know, if you're basically going to hold um, hold back some money or you're going to have some in escrow, on what basis do you keep some back? How do you negotiate that? Our regulators, we're in regulated businesses and financial services, you know, in the, you know, in, you know, in, in a period where regulators want to protect, um, we're, we're looking at the economy, you know, what, what, um, how will they respond when they basically, will, they, will, will approvals come with conditions? In addition to that, we're, a, we're an impact fund. So um, the emerging consumer is incredibly important to us. So we're also basically kind of be thinking about how, you know, businesses that are also, um, that, you know, that, that, are, that have got the resilience to be able to kind of manage, you know, and, and, and to be able to manage um, the ability to be able to very quickly, um, I, whether it's basically give people um, payment holidays, um, as I described earlier on, or um, you know, protect their agents, agents so that there's sustainability, business, uh, uh, sustainability of the business model once we basically have a return to um, normal business, uh, normal economic activity. So, so, you know, we, our investment strategy has certainly not changed, but I would say in terms of subsectors, we're looking at the sectors that have benefited, and I mentioned some earlier on payments, payments for some, uh, and then we're looking at um, payments, remittances. We're looking at really resilient business models where management is run through. But then, in you know, and then we're basically looking at structures and how we basically can manage the gap between where sellers are today and where we think we are, given that no one really knows what the whether, you know, we might just lose 2020, but we might lose part of 2021. And what impact will that then have on RIR going forward? And so ways of structuring then becomes a kind of key consideration at this at this juncture. Okay, thank you. And uh, a follow-up question I have for you is, um, I know that there are a number of facilities that a number of the development finance institutions have, uh, have put together in, in quite quick order, actually. Have you been working with any of these facilities? And do you see that being part of your strategy, aligning with the capital that you intend to deploy going forward, just so that you make sure that caps are not drying up? Yeah, I, I only heard part of that. I think it's my line, but I think what you, um, uh, uh, um, but with respect to um, the credit, I mean, we have a credit, you know, we have a number of credit businesses. So um, part of the one of the key responses that we initially had when we basically reached out to our management was to really understand what their liquidity requirements were, especially because um, it, it was important. That, you know, there are two reasons for that. One is clearly, if you're, um, we, we know that if you're an emerging consumer. Um, who, who's now under lockdown and, and, and is unable to basically go out and make your money if you're and if you're a hairdresser or you're a trader um, who basically is making your money on a daily basis. How you know cash flow basically dies, and so they won't be able to pay back. And so the key thing was basically uh, was to kind of address that. And then for the businesses that are lending to this underserved um, resilient businesses that are lending to this underserved um, po uh, po um, population. Um, they, there's an element, you know, there's a kind of recycling and clearly, um, you know, if there is a delay in payment, we wanted to make sure that there is sufficient liquidity going forward. So we actually went through our whole portfolio and we, 
we did actually get a sense of where they are. And I have to say our, L, um, our LPs, the ones who are DFIs, also have reached out to us. We actually had a kind of meeting of minds on that. So one of the things we've been very active is in kind of moving that, for, um, moving that together um, with our portfolio companies. And then with future, you know, with, when we look at, as we look into making new investments, we're actually then using that plan because we're clearly asking management of potential new companies to basically kind of work through that so we can have that conversation early to enable them to plan for that. I, I only got part of your question, Gita, so I hope I've answered it. Uh, you, you have mostly answered it. The, the question I, I want you to hone in on, actually, Freeman, I might ask you to go back to that, is just specifically in terms of the facility that a number of the development finance institutions have put together. Are you finding those helpful? And, and are you planning on uh, leaning on these facilities for deployment? I see. So yeah, so we we have been um, um, we've been talking to a number of um, the DFIs, and because clearly what we want to do is they put our portfolio companies directly in touch um, with with um, with the DFIs. There are, however, you know, I think what what is very what has been very impressive is how quickly and the rapid response to which those have been available. But there are some considerations in being able to use them. Clearly, I think one of the key ones for now is local currency versus forex right so i think you know what we're seeing is you know if you are if um um if you're if, if you're an insurance company or or, or indeed a, any regulated financial company taking on um foreign current usd debt it would sometimes it would be punitive in any event and in the case where it isn't maybe in the case of some mfis given the you know the the um the you know the uncertain impact that COVID will have on, on macroeconomic um, conditions, you know, where oil prices, especially for um, the commodity exporters. Um, I, think there are some, I think there are some tweaks. Um, and so one of the discussions that we've been having with some of those DFIs is local currency. Is it possibility that there is some local currency? Because there's, um, you know, there are some other um, second order risks that come, up, that come from taking on some of those um, facilities immediately. Okay, thank you very much. John, if I move to you for a moment there and move specifically to the topic of exit, how are you seeing your own plans around exit evolving currently? Uh, and uh, do you feel that you are going to go back to, uh, need to go back to LPs and ask for extensions? Do you see that being something which you know, many funds are going to be in a position of having to do? Uh, I do think so. So, I mean, first of all, no one who is alive has actually seen this situation before. So I think, you know, the ability for a buyer, we see the biggest challenge for, for any buyer, apart from the psychological damage and potential biases, is the ability to get their head around sustainable earnings. So it's very difficult. Uh, there's going to be no linear path in earnings, and it's very difficult to predict for each industry how it will play out. So I think from our side, without doubt, um, the exits will be far more difficult and will definitely take take longer. Access to credits as well or access to debt in, in our market certainly is, is not easy at the moment. So, you know, you, you're seeing debt multiples come down, so requiring larger equity checks. I think that the probably the one note, though, is that there are definitely um, sectors where you will see increased corporate activity, and we think in particular on the ICT side, there's still a strong demand there, so you may see uh, corporate activity enabling enabling exits. And then I think also uh, around consolidation of industries, uh, you, you may see more and more exits 
looking like instead of cash exits, potentially the ability to fold into a consolidation play, still get your exit, but most likely in 24 to 36 months. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Adesua, uh, in terms of next steps forward, uh, I think you are in the midst of a fundraise right now. The question I have is how are you finding engagement with LPs changing uh, after the effects of, of COVID have started to affect day to day life on the continent? Yeah, thank you, Eva. So I think for us, uh, you know, this has definitely been a shock to us. You know, we are we have a strategy where we are deploying capital and fundraising at the same time. So we do have a little bit of amount of dry powder left, but um, it's one where we would have to leverage on kind of get to compete um, uh, the deal that we have in our pipeline. Um, so for us internally, you know, we're saying that you know, our fundraising timelines have been have definitely been extended for another 18 to 24 months. We're, we're being realistic. Um, so for us, you know, we are putting our heads down and seeing how we can optimize our current company uh, that we have within the fund uh, and how we can leverage the little dry powder that we have to uh, work with other private equity funds. But yes, I think it's, it's definitely fundraising, you know, our discussions are still ongoing with a number of the DFIs. Uh, if I'm being realistic to myself, uh, I see any of the DFIs supporting a first-time fund manager this year uh, that hasn't been in their pipeline for um, an amount of time. Um, I don't think so. Um, so. So, yeah, I think for us, you know, we are just putting our heads down and executing, optimizing the portfolio that we have and also um, and also um, looking to leverage the right powder that we have. Uh, I do think as well, something that this, this crisis has also shown uh, for uh, small, small businesses that we back, you know, we're, we're a relatively small fund that wants to write checks at below 5 million. Uh, so something that we have seen as part of this crisis is a lot of the government inspections that have been announced are very much debt focused. Um, Still have very, very burdensome requirements. They still have very, very bureaucratic loan, loan procedures applications. Uh, so something that this has shown is that there is more of a need for local managers to have capital and to have capital and be, be, be able to react quickly in these situations. Um, so so I'm hoping <laughs> that there is a little impetus. Uh, that, that comes out of this crisis to try and shorten some of the fundraising times that we have so we're able to support these means that you know the patient equity now more than ever uh, rather than the debt that's being offered uh, by, by government-led interventions. Agreed, agreed. One of the things I find quite fascinating is how around the world what they're seeing is a similar trend where before it felt like capitalism meant you had private businesses on one side and you had government on the other. Right now, we're seeing both coming much closer to each other. We realize, you know, it's part of one ecosystem, and the role of government, both in public, both in in, uh, in other countries outside of Africa as well as within Africa, is fundamentally changing and shifting. And I think there's a there's a willingness on all sides to to try and help create a stronger stronger environment and a stronger economy going forward. Yomi, if I can come back to you now. Uh, a question that I have specifically on, on your portfolio and what Tony Stone is doing in, in Nigeria is relating to, as you go forward again, with the view of uh, deploying capital, do you find that there is a 
particular strategy, which is completely new for you, that has just become a lot more relevant now. Something you may have considered before, but decided not to go down the route of, uh, but still obviously staying within the investment mandate, but it has something fundamental shifted. Uh, so the short answer to that is no or not yet. And I have to, you know, I have to be honest, this is um, a very interesting time to be getting too creative about something that is not on your table. I think there's a lot of creativity that has been demanded of us on the things that are already on the table, right? And so, um, so the answer is no, but let me speak a little bit more. When I, one of the challenges we're facing actually right now is, as I, as I said, we have one portfolio company. We were supposed to close three deals between May and June. Um, and um, all of a sudden, um, there's, uh, first of all, uh, many things are stopped. By the way, we invest in Nigeria and Ghana. And one, one live due diligence is in Ghana. Luckily, the due diligence uh, teams had gone in to start, but there's been a lot of progress, but there are parts of the due diligence we've not been able to progress. So although, fortunately, uh, those three transactions, uh, two of them are healthcare, one is financial services slash technology. So the business model is still uh, kind of responding positively, but all our businesses, both that we're in, um, that are portfolio companies and both those that are in pipeline, what we're doing is we're taking a look at the 2020 projections and we're, we're sitting down with the managers and saying, what, what, what is happening in 2020 so far and what are your revised projections on that different scenarios? And all of them are down to different ranges. So for even those deals that we want to proceed with, uh, there are questions, like Karima said, there's one of them that valuation still holds, but we have to kind of restructure the transaction. There's a, there's a major secondary part of that transaction. You know, we're thinking, do we sit down with them and say, hey, how do we transfer this in a way that makes sense? Timing has moved. So it's more about getting creative about what's on the table today and less about the new stuff. I think the one, one mention, I think, from Albert, however, uh, is and Albert and John, um, again, thinking about the business that we're already in, where we really like the entrepreneur. This is his second business. He is um, engaging and challenging and working with us in thinking about scenarios. So for us, we're really excited about, I mean, I know our investment there is trunched, but we're really excited about finding the pivot he wants to do because we will be very comfortable after working with him to continue to deploy on his, you know, backing him because of the comfort we have in him. So that's the creativity that we're working around, more around the things that we have on the table today rather than new things. I think the final point I have to make is there are a few transactions that were second order in terms of um, second order in terms of advancement that we still kind of like, but there's a wait and see. We know that valuation will change because of FX. Um, yes, they are based on local um, industrial activities, but a lot of their capex is uh, FX-based. And so there's going to be a repricing. And those entrepreneurs today don't want to talk about repricing because, and in fact, when you talk about repricing, what FX are you using? So we kind of want to wait to see how things settle before we go back to those conversations. Thanks very much. So well, I'm just going to move quickly to some of the questions and answers, that are, uh, questions rather that uh, seeking answers coming through. We have one question that's come through from Anne, and I'm going to um, open this up to uh, our side in a moment. So do any of the fund managers have an in-house base of consultants and or roving consultants that work with investing companies? And do you think there is any value in having that for viable but struggling portfolio companies in the current situation? 
I might start that question off with uh, with Karima and then move to Albert, given the, the, the volume of investment you have both in your portfolio currently. So can I move this to uh, Karima first, please? We have, um, yeah, internally, we actually have an operating partner um, um, and um, who, who is an expert who, um, you know, sort of spent 30 years or so as an operator and basically joined us and, and worked with our companies on just how they're basically running their crisis. And so he has been, he, um, he's been working with us on, on the operations, for example, in insurance and in, um, in, in banking. In addition to that, we're clearly, inter because we, um, as part of our value creation, we've always had a consumer insights and a talent team. And so they've basically been working through um, with, with, and they, they've continued to work with our portfolio companies on how they look at how, you know, in a, at a time when people can't go out and get collections or at a time, you know, um, at a time when people can't go and meet their customers, how do you engage with them electronically? Um, you, and that's work that has been ongoing. So I would actually say, or, and so they've been able to accelerate that. So yes, the, the answer is yes. And they continue. Some of them are consultants, and some of them are, are internal uh, internal operating partners. Thank you, Albert. Is that the same approach that uh, Mediterranean have taken? Yes. Look, I think he's totally right. I agree with Karim. I think it's very useful to have uh, external consultants to to help you in this moment because you have to differentiate. It's very different to manage the day-to-day -day activity and to manage a crisis. Crisis is a different type of person that they needs to have a special set of skills of quick decision-making, of decision-making based on limited data, and, and I would say a very different set of leadership skills. We do have currently in our company a number of independent board members that we're using quite a lot in these moments of crisis that has helped us. Look, in our uh, partnership, we do have a number of us that have unfortunately been involved in a number of crises, uh, so, so that helps a lot to understand the different types of skills. So absolutely, yes, I think it is good when you have a, a struggling company to have someone from outside to help you to take those tough decisions that you have to take in a very surgical uh, way. So absolutely, yes, yeah, Gita. Great, uh, thank you. And uh, I'm now going to move in the last 10 minutes that we have, uh, 11 minutes that we have of this webinar. I'm, move, I'm going to move to just a, a few rapid fire questions, just one for each person, and then we'll wrap up with a, a final thought from each of the panelists. Uh, Adeshura, I'm going to start with you. What is it that you wish you knew three months ago that uh, would change how it is that you are able to prepare for what comes next? Uh, yeah, so I think um, I wish I knew that our supply chain was going to get as disrupted as it did. <laughs> you know, we, we, as part of our transaction, you know, our transaction for our portfolio company that's involved in the personal hygiene manufacturing, uh, our, our transaction was foreign working capital. Uh, so I wish I knew three months ago that we found a 12 months of working capital rather than three months of working capital. Um, and I would say that's what I would I want you because with the lockdown being extended and the fact that we don't have access to uh, our raw materials being stuck at the ports here in Lagos, uh, just, our supply chain has just really been massively um, disrupted. So if we knew three months ago that we pre-planned and maybe more involved. Um, we might be in a better position today, just, just because we're not we're not getting out of the effect. I appreciate. Uh, some other companies may 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 may. may, may. I appreciate that. Thank yeah, you. That, that's what I was. Albert, um, 
the opportunity that we see investing in Africa has always been there, regardless of where the cycle that we have been. And after three vintages, um, funds that you have raised, how do you see that truly changing? What is the different compelling proposition? Or is it the same compelling proposition in terms of trust the fund manager to do a good job being able to outperform the challenges that are in the market? Look, absolutely. That's, uh, uh, that's uh, the question. In fact, this morning I was talking with a number of private investors uh, that, uh, that we have, none of them DFIs. And I think the message was very clear. I've been hearing, uh, you know, the, the calls from a lot of asset managements, global asset managements, and they all confirm that, look, now more than ever, growth will come from emerging markets. There's no growth in OECD countries. Growth will come from emerging markets. We're in a privileged position today to be able to, uh, you know, uh, be on the wave of, uh, of uh, emerging markets growth, and particularly all linked to the race of the middle class. I think that's where it lies. Uh, the investor that I was talking today is saying we don't see where to put our money because it is uh, capital markets, as you know, have had a huge impact. So I think we're in a moment of what we call it uh, short-term turbulence, but long-term growth. We're lucky. We're long-term investors. We invest in companies which are sound for four, five years, cycles uh, in uh, fund three with the beginning of the cycle. So we're very lucky So on fund two, we will be able to have to, uh, to need to have an extension on that value creation plan. But absolutely, I think uh, we're in, I would say, in the, in the right spot at this moment of time. Okay, thank you. John, um, again, picking up on that, on that topic of cycle, we've known what the challenges have been of the entire private equity model, especially in markets like ours in Africa. Is this a, another proof point in terms of an argument moving towards long, longer-term funds so that private equity capital is truly even more patient? Are you potentially exploring uh, ideas around permanent capital vehicles, or do you think that the market should be exploring such ideas more seriously now? Yeah, I think that's, that's a really good question. Um, if, if I think of the role that private equity can play post the crisis in terms of rebuilding industries, and I think critically in terms of uh, creating jobs and improving job quality, uh, you need a long-term time horizon for that. And uh, so I do think, I think we probably do see an increase in popularity of, of permanent capital vehicles. But I think as an industry, what we need to work out is you know it's a very convenient way to push liquidity back onto our investors and in a world now where we are seeing extension of funds across the board how do we essentially solve liquidity for for our investors after a certain point in time so that we don't uh, trap them in in uh, in vehicles where they have to to uh, potentially take considerable discounts Understood, especially when you still see significant value in your portfolio and are perhaps not quite ready to, to say goodbye. Um, Correct. And Yumi, uh, in terms of Nigeria, I'm going to ask you to take a bit of a macro view here. Um, what are the opportunities that you think are going to emerge in a post-COVID world uh, from, I mean, from you know, in the giants of the region? Um, well, I mean, one that's already obvious, I think, just as previous government focused on agriculture and we've seen major strides, I think healthcare, right? They, we're waking up to the underinvestment, um, uh, little focus that has been given to healthcare. So
I think we may also want to have a discussion about investment in things related to healthcare, healthcare related services and products uh, in terms of We lost you there just for about uh, six or seven seconds. Okay, sorry. Second, uh, second, I think it would also doubling down on the food, uh, the food industry. I mean, because again, um, there's a lot that has happened, and I think it would, in terms of the supply chain aspect of things, I think we're seeing uh, deficiencies in focusing on either the primary or the processing, um, and actually the linkages uh, that come in between. I think there will be opportunities there. Um, uh, Post COVID. Uh, I think there are things that are happening right now that are short-term um, shocks, uh, as we've said. Uh, we will continue to be a high-consuming um, uh, economy and market. And so all these businesses, many of them that have to do with essentials and that are driven by local production and raw material, I think there will be a lot more focus on them uh, because what's going to happen is there's going to be increased price sensitivity. And as we saw in previous recessions where Consumption didn't really drop, but what happens was there was a shift to just more, um, in terms of the more conscious, uh, cost-conscious market, to more uh, price-sensitive products. And so we, I see that continuing to be the winners. So I think, uh, by and large, those are my thoughts. Thanks, Yomi. And this very much ties in. Interestingly enough, about 10 years ago, a common thing that DFIs were, uh, were actually monitoring within all the investments was, uh, was import substitution. To what extent is your investment helping build local resiliency? I can almost see something like that coming back to the floor. Karima, uh, a last question for you. You talked about the emerging consumer. And when we look at uh, Africa today and Africa in the last 10 years, much of the growth and the success of businesses has predominantly come from exactly this consumer base. Do you see a shift happening there in terms of who's going to be consuming going forward and how are they going to finance that consumption? Sorry, Karima, I think we still have you on mute. Ah. We, so when it comes to the emerging consumer, I think, when, especially in, in relation to the COVID impact, I think, the, um, and this lockdown, what we're seeing is that the emerging consumer is disproportionately impacted. You know, the, the small, you know, the small hairdresser, the, 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 the trader, the reseller of, um, uh, um, uh, um, of, of, of mobile phone um, credit. Um, so, I, you know, I, our concern is that this lockdown, um, I know it's been lifted in Ghana now, but certainly the impact of the, um, of the economic slowdown will have a disproportional impact on that particular consumer base. Um, and I do think, and, you know, the fear is that um, for some, for some, uh, you know, or a proportion where there is, you know, where, you know, where there could be, where there comes a big, um, um, you know, a, an event like a health event, which could be COVID related, or actually could basically be um, education um, related at the, at the point where there is no income, um, there is a risk that basically people fall further down. And we've basically seen a huge growth in that particular com consumer basis, the people have moved out of poverty, and there may well be some slowdown. But going forward, we still continue to believe that they're going, they're still the future of the continent. Um, they represent still, you know, just under two thirds. Um, and you know, I think with with essential with with essential services um, that my colleagues have spoken about, healthcare, education, um, you know, they still continue to kind of be the future of the um, future of the continent. But yeah, and the, um, and the and the other thing that you cannot change is clearly the demo demographics. But 
some of the other essential services need to come together, you know, education and access to um, access to energy um, and infrastructure to basically make the continent work better. But that particular consumer class is going to basically be the driver of future growth going forward. I agree. And I think what they're going to have is also uh, an additional um, uh, component in terms of, of folks who are previously consuming off the continent or consuming things that were imported, who now are in a position where they're going to have that cut off, that access cut off. Um, you know, That's a global conversation, right? Because I think, you know, the idea of comp comparative advantage, the idea that, you know, you could just get, I think everywhere everybody's looking at their supply chain and thinking about diversifying that significantly. And so I think, that I'm hoping that that essentially means that we'll get where you, where you say we're going, Gita. I, I think so, especially in a world where we've been trying to, to move forward with the African continental free trade agreement and what that means in terms of creating the continent, as long as they still movement. We have just come to the end of the uh, of the webinar. I want to say thank you to everyone. You've actually invited us into your home. You have seen my home as well. It's an unusual time, and um, I hope everybody stays safe. Uh, and, and good luck with everything that you have uh, in, in your own personal life and balancing that with obviously what's happening with your investment. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the African Private Equity and Venture Capital Association, please visit avca-africa.org.